So let's see, we are up to chapter 19. If you remember, last time we learned, we read about the death of Absalom, right? How Yoav disregarded King David's instructions and actually killed Absalom, even though David had told him not to. Okay. The king was shaken. He went up to the upper chamber of the gateway and wept, moaning these words as he went, my son Absalom, oh, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is a very long-winded mourning, right? In terms of what the Torah is recording for us, right? So we do have recorded elsewhere in the Torah, in Tanakh, in, in, the, in the prophets, as well as in the five books, we have recorded of how people were sad, right? By Yisabel Aleha, right? We have Abraham mourning for Sarah, right? We have mourning discussed, but in terms of the descriptive and the, the pathos, right? The way it is describing his emotional state that we don't have. We have generic and they were sad, they mourned, but this is very, very descriptive. Now, we've already seen David lose children previously, right? He did not have the easiest of lives. You know, if, in Yiddish, we would say he was gehakt tzuris, right? It means uh, he <laughs> sur surrounded uh, all over, right? You know, the up and down with the tzuris, right? With the, with the, the suffering, right? Um, so he lost that son with, with Bathsheba, right? Um, he, who only lived seven days. He lost Amnon. Amnon was murdered by his brother Avshalom, right? You know, at least was not literally murdered by his brother, but at least was set into play by his brother, the murder. But we never have this description. And this is the first time that we have this description of David just, just really blown away. And more than that, what's strange is his son rebelled against him, right? What is the deal, right? And we're going to see that there's some sort of a, there is a tension here. As we read further, we will see this tension of that this was somewhat, it was off-putting to many of the people because they couldn't believe that David was expressing this much sorrow over his son who had tried to take his life. Now, uh, what's important to recognize is the way that he describes it is, if only I had died instead of you. Is this just some sort of random idea that parents will always say, I'd rather take the bullet than the child taking the bullet? Is it just a way of expressing that? Or is it perhaps something more than that? So I think we discussed really last time the idea that what David was saying is David was hoping that his son Absalom would not have to die. He thought that part of the punishment for what he had engaged in, the behavior that he engaged in with Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, part of the punishment was to have a rebellion against him. But it was not preordained that his son had to die. So therefore, he was saying, I wish my son doesn't die. And initially, he told Yoav, don't kill him. Now, if you're dealing with in terms of what Hashem's plan for the world is, right, and you're living in a world in which everything is specifically dealing with anything that happens to each individual in their lives happens because God ordained it to happen. And then our free will is to choose how we react to those, to those circumstances and to choose how, what we do with our own actions, right? But other than that, things happen to us because God ordains it. If you're living in that world, when something like your own son rebelling against you happens, you recognize that it happened because God ordained that to happen. However, the people of Israel are not on that plane. 
And they are not aware of the prophecy of Nathan Hanavi, Nathan the prophet, who had told David that he's going to get punished in four ways. They are not aware of that. So they see this as purely a power grab by Absalom. And they cannot accept that David actually is mourning over his son. But in terms of King David's perspective, he's saying, listen, why did you have to die? I am the one who deserves the punishment. The reason why you rebelled against me is because this was ordained by Hashem as part of the punishment for what I, I engaged in, the behavior that I did. And therefore, you shouldn't have had to die. I should have been the one to take that bullet. Okay? Yoab was told that the king was weeping and mourning over Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the troops. For that day, the troops heard the king was grieving over his son. In other words, they were very happy about their victory. They had bet on one side, right? They had bet that David would be able to overcome the, be able to overcome the, the uh, rebellion. But, um, but then what they find is that, the, that David does not, um, that after they overcome the, the enemy and they destroyed the enemy, but David's response is to be sad that everyone else, that, um, to be sad that his own son was, was, died, right? Which doesn't seem to be the proper the proper response to them, right? It takes away from their joy. Okay. Can I ask a question, please? Who who was the Absalom mom? Which wife? She. Do I, we know? I think her name was Macha. I can't. I can't remember if that was her. If that was his mom or Amnon's mom. But she was also a um, a non-Jewish convert to Judaism. She's not Bathsheba or Abigail or Michal, you know, one of the wives that were, you know, Saul's daughter or any of any of the previous wives. She's actually what we call an Eshet Yefat To'ar, a woman who he had taken to be his wife after um, after the battlefield. Okay, now the troops stole into town that day like troops ashamed after running away in battle. The king covered his face and the king kept crying aloud, Oh, my son, Avshalom. Oh, Avshalom, my son, my son. This is a long, a long and protracted wailing and weeping that's happening over here. This did not end in a moment, right? We saw first he, he wails, right? Let's just go back up for a moment. First, what happens is he cries. Another here. First, we find he goes up to the upper chamber of the gateway. What's the upper chamber of the gateway? Right, if you're picturing sort of like a, uh, a castle, right? Battlements, right? So he's up on a tower in plain view of everyone. He is mourning in plain view. And that's why everybody finds out right away. Then even after that, when he sees the reaction of the, of the troops, he covers his face and he goes inside, but he continues to cry. And continuously saying, my son of Shalom, my son of Shalom, like a, almost a mantra. Yoab came to the king in his quarters and said, today you have humiliated all your followers who this day saved your lives and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. By showing love for those who hate you and hate for those who love you. Right? This is an inappropriate response. Yoab is telling him. Right, your reaction should have been to recognize that 
that um, that this was a good response and this was the the good the good conclusion to the to the rebellion. But instead, you're expressing your regret and not celebrating with the fact that we've won the battle, and instead expressing your regret for the fact that your son is dead. Now, this idea of showing love for those who hate you and hate for those who love you, it's misplaced emotions. Okay? Where else have we found misplaced emotions about a king in Israel? Anybody remember? Saul? Yeah, I mean, sure, this, it's a good guess, because at this point, we, <laughs> we only have had only, only one other king. So <laughs> Saul's misplaced, but thank you, Chuck. Uh, Saul's misplaced emotion was that when God said to him, I want you to destroy Amalek. Saul said, oh, no, no, that's way too cruel. That's not merciful. He refuses to do it. And then later on, what happens is he ends up destroying an entire city of Nov, Ir HaKohanim, the city of Nov that was full of priests. Why? Because he thought that they were harboring David and giving him refuge. And therefore he kills them and they do not deserve to die. So what we know about Saul is that he shows mercy to those who don't deserve mercy, and shows a lack of mercy to those who deserve mercy. Misplaced emotions. For you have made clear today that the officers and men mean nothing to you. I am sure that if Absalom were alive today and the rest of us dead, you would have preferred it. Very, very strong way of speaking to the king. He's trying to, yeah, to snap out of it. Now arise, come out and placate your followers. For I swear by the Lord that if you do not come out, not a single man will remain with you overnight. And that would be a greater disaster for you than any disaster that has befallen you from your youth until now. Very, very powerful, right? In terms of ordering the king what to do. But he's also warning him in very stark terms that typically what happens is when there is a successful battle, the king comes out and the troops will then present themselves, right? At, at a you know, parade, right? They'll parade you know, at arms. And they'll show, and they'll get the response that they feel that they deserve and the morale boost of having the king recognize them for their valor in battle. And instead, David's sitting and crying over his son. So the king arose and sat down in the gateway. And when all the troops were told that the king was sitting in the gateway, all the troops presented themselves to the king. Okay? Now, at this point, in the very same verse, what we are told Right. So it, parenthetically, I think we discussed this in the past. It's a good place to, to remember it right now. The, num the numbers that we have, like 9, 10, all that stuff, that is not the splitting up of the verses that the original splitting up was meant to be. Right. If you look at the Hebrew, you'll find things. And that's really where, where topics are supposed to be split up. Right. Sometimes you have a samach, sometimes you have a uh, a, um, a pay. And that's where that's where they're supposed to be split. Right. We have a trap. Right? We have the specific way in which we read the verses, and we have something called the sof pasuk, the end of the verse, and there's a way in which we switch the, the tune in which we read it to, to imply that it's the end of the verse. But over here, this is all one topic. So all within one topic, not one verse, because it's not really as important to us. These verses were put in actually by later by Christian printers. But in one topic as well, we are told that the king listens to Yoav's advice or pretty strong rebuke, actually. And he sits down in the gateway and they all parade in front of him. Now, after they parade in front of him, what are we told? Now the Israelites had fled to their homes, right? So we transition from talking about how the kings 
sitting now, morning and sun, but he's sitting in place and watching how the parade in front of him. And immediately afterwards, we are told that now the troops, I'm sorry, now the Israelites had fled to their homes. Who are the Israelites that are fleeing to their homes? Who are we referring to here? Anybody know? Well, it's not, uh, it's not Judas, right? Right, it's not, it's not Judas. And by the way, we don't really see what happened to Judah. We've never heard that Judah's, Judah's tribe actually remained with David. We don't see that, right? We saw David had a small army. He had a bunch of uh, people, maybe a lot of them were not even Jewish, people who he had befriended previously who came to offer him succor. But we have not seen that like all the, the tribe of Judah stayed with him. We actually did not see that. And we're going to see shortly, they did not all stay with him. So, but we, you are right that what we're discussing over here is the fact that Absalom's army melted away after he died. Now, let's see what happens here, because now there is a lot of debate, right, uh, as to whether or not to certify the victory. Uh, that might have been a Freudian slip. All the people throughout the tribes of Israel were arguing. Some said, the king saved us from the hands of our enemies, and he delivered us from the hands of the Philistines. And just now he had to flee the country because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Why then do you sit idle instead of escorting the king back? So what happens now? We see that there's actually a, a, a junction over here. You might have thought that as soon as David wins the battle, it would be over. The rebellion's over. He is reseated as the king, recoronated after this ill-fated action. But that's not what happens. The people do not immediately respond. First, they all go back to their homes, and then they start arguing. And yet this guy got up there and say, we need to listen to him. But only some, not everybody, right? They're going back and forth. There's a faction that says we need to put him back here. Let's recognize him for everything that he did for us in the past. He had to flee the country because of Absalom. Absalom, we decided to anoint over us, not God, right? Not like David, who was anointed by a priest. Not, not, not anointed by him, not a priest, but a prophet. Not, not God. We anointed Absalom. He died. Why are we sitting here like this? David is supposed to be our king. Let's go back and get David. But as I said, there's a conversation happening over there. The talk of all Israel reached the king in his quarters. A little bit of a flip of what we had been saying earlier, that the talk of David mourning his son reached everyone. Now we're saying is the talk of all Israel as to whether or not he should be recrowned king reached David. I think there's a, a hint to something over there. I think the hint is that because David was not so decisive after Absalom died and he publicly was mourning his loss, as opposed to saying, I will now be king again, there was a sense of, is he really the right person to be the king? The king has to operate first and foremost as the leader of the Jewish people. And when there is a rebellion against the king, the king has to operate and put that rebellion down in his position as king. He cannot mourn the loss of his son if his son is the leader of the rebellion. And there was a loss in the people's eyes. And therefore, there was this back and forth. Indeed, should we recrown him as king, right? Seems like a democratic process almost, right? You know, are we really going to go welcome him back or not? So King David sent this message to the priests, Sadok and Aviatar. Speak to the elders of Judah and say, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace? You are my kinsmen, my own flesh and blood. Why should you be the last to escort the king back? What's David trying to do? 
Now, if we think about previously, we know David comes from the tribe of Judah. But as soon as David gets anointed king and then gets accepted as the king over all of Israel, he leaves Hebron, which is the ancestral seat of the tribe of Judah, and instead goes to Jerusalem to make his dwelling place in the national, the national capital, almost, right? A place that is only partially of Judah, partially of, um, of Binyamin, right? Why was David doing that? David was treating all of the tribes equally. He was trying to be as impartial as possible. But now he says, I need you to come be the first ones to help ensure that everyone else accepts me. You got to be the ones to jump into the sea, so to speak, right? You know, we know that the reason why, um, why the tribe of Judah is the tribe from which the kings come from is because Nachshon ben Aminadav, who is the tribe of the, 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 um, the leader of, one of the leaders of the tribe of Judah, is the one to jump into the water first at the Sea of Reeds and split the sea. And that's why they're chosen. So once again, David is saying, you guys have to take the initiative. You guys have to be the first ones to recrown me. And we're related. Why should you be the last? He's really just trying to get the, the, the pins to start rolling, right? You know, to get that first pickle out of the pickle jar, and then the rest of them will follow. And he continues giving advice. And to Amasa, say this, you are my own flesh and blood. May God do thus and more to me if you do not become my army commander permanently in place of Yoav. So now we see David start acting decisively with alacrity. And what he says is, number one, let's get Judah on my side ASAP. Number two, I want Amasa to come replace Yoav. What's going on over here? What's Amasa? Who was Amasa? Amasa was actually Yoav's, not Yoav, sorry. Amasa was actually Absalom's leader. He was his marshal. He was the main, the main general of his army. And yet David says, you know what? Amasa is now going to become my general. So there's two different factors happening here. Number one, David is not pleased with Yoav. Yoav killed his son. David told him not to. And whether or not Yoav had a good calculation, he may have had the, the, the best of calculations, and it might have even been true. He might have been correct in his assessment. That being said, he disobeyed the king. And when you disobey the king, you better come prepared, right? You only get one shot, and the shot did not work. David did not accept it. And so, number one, Yoav is going to be replaced. Why Amasa? So this is, once again, David showing his alliance-building skills. He's recognizing that there is a, a, a sort of debate happening right now as to whether or not he should indeed become the king again. We don't know who the other possibility was. Avshalom is dead. Presumably, it may have been someone back from the tribe of Saul. It may have been someone from any of the tribes. It could be each tribe was vying to have their leader become the new king. We don't know. That is not given. Information is not given to us. David recognizes the importance of taking the main faction that was actively opposing him and bringing them back together. And through doing so, that would help bring together the tribe of Judah. And once the tribe of Judah is in line, then everyone else should fall in line. So I must assuade the hearts of all the, is the Judites as one man. And they sent a message to the king, come back with all your followers. So now the king is ready to accept, they're ready to accept the king back. The king started back and arrived at the Jordan, and the Judites went to Gilgal to meet the king and to conduct the king across the Jordan. Shimi, son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, 
hurried down with the Judites to meet King David. Now, who's Shimei's son of Gera? What did Shimei's son of Gera do previously to David? He cursed him out. He threw stones at him. He treated him like a, a lemela, right? Like someone who is not worthy of anything, of any honor at all, right? And all of a sudden now, let's see what he does. Accompanied by a thousand Benjaminites to express his uh, appreciation, his thanks, his misgivings for what he had done previously. And Siva, the servant of the house of Saul, together with his 15 sons and 20 slaves, rushed down to the Jordan ahead of the king. So there is a, a palpable sense here of how the, the people of Judah are coming together to greet the king. The Shimi ben Gera is coming as well, coming down as well. But about Siva, what we, what we are uh, told that they run down, right? They rush to ensure that they come there first. Siva is a very calculating individual, as we will see. While the crossing was being made to escort the king's family over and to do whatever he wished, right? So he's, he's toting himself now in front of King David as if he was to say that he's always on his side. He wants to ensure that he indeed remains the, the, not just the, the manager of Saul's belongings, but actually is given them permanently. Shimei, son of Gera, flung himself before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. He said to the king, let not my lord hold me guilty. And do not remember the wrong your servant committed on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Let your majesty give it no thought. For your servant knows that he has sinned. So here I have come down today, the first of all the house of Joseph, to meet my lord the king. Now, what does it mean the first of all the house of Joseph? Why Joseph? He's not from Joseph. He's from Benjamin. Benjamin's not Joseph. Why is he describing himself as the first from the house of Joseph? Anybody know? So when we think of the colossal clashes between the, the Jewish people, we think of the approaches between Yehuda and Joseph, right? We find by Yigash Elav Yehuda, right? That after Yosef reveal, right before Yosef reveals himself to the brothers when they come down to Egypt, Yosef says, I'm going to be taking Benjamin as my slave. And Yehuda approaches him ready to do battle. And this tension between Yehuda and Yosef is a tension that lasts till the end of times, actually. So when we're going to see the splitting up of the kingdom after Shlomo HaMelech, after King Solomon dies, it will be split up between Joseph and the rest of the 10 tribes and Yehuda and actually Benjamin. So when we think of the other tribes other than Yehuda, we think of them as being led by Yosef, right? When is it going to come back together again? When we have the Mashiach ben Yosef, who will be the first Mashiach, will be ben Yosef to help bring together all of the Jewish people. And then Mashiach ben David will be the one to bring us into Eretz Yisrael, right? Thereupon, Avishai son of Tzriya spoke up. Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for that? Insulting the Lord's anointed? What's Avishai doing? Who remembers where Avishai came up before? Avishai came up before a couple of times. One of the times was that David had the opportunity to take a kill shot on Saul. And Avishai is like, take it, take it, take it. He's trying to kill you. You have to kill him first. Right? If a guy's coming to kill you, you get up and kill him first. And logically, you'd be, you'd be justified. And David's response is, I can't kill him. He's the anointed of God. 
So Abishai says back to him, one second, now you're the anointed of God. And Shimi insulted you. Isn't that a capital offense? But David said, what has this to do with you, you sons of Tzuriah, that you should cross me today? He's not just calling him the son of Tzuriah. He's only one son of Tzuriah. What's he trying to say? He's saying, listen, it's bad enough that Yoav, your older brother, is bossing me around and thinks that he knows best what I should be doing with my kingship. Now you're also bossing me around? What's going on over here? You do not know better than me, right? The very act that you're trying to remedy by having me kill the person who insulted me, you're truly insulting me, right? By not trusting my judgment. Should a single Israelite be put to death today? Don't I know that today I am again king over Israel? In other words, on the day that he is going to be accepted again as the king of the entire Israel, it is completely, completely inappropriate for him to then go and kill even one Jew, right? And the time for peace is after the rebellion has been put down. These are all your brothers and sisters. This is not the time to stand on grudges and to say you were part of the rebellion. I'm going to have to kill you today. You need to show a sense of reconciliation immediately. Then the king said to Shimi, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. We'll see later on, uh, Shimi actually does get killed because of David's command, but only after David is no longer the king. Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, also came down to meet the king. Who is Mephibosheth? He is the son of Yonatan. Jonathan, who had the special, special relationship with David, he is the only remaining descendant of Saul, and he was lamed when they were trying to bring him away from the palace before the Philistines would get there, and he was lamed, right? And he is the, the individual who Tziva was his servant. He had not peered his toenails or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day that the king left until the day he returned safe. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you come with me, Mephibosheth? Right? Why does the king say this to Mephibosheth of all people? Right? So if you think about it, David has had a life of betrayals. He had his own king who he was desperately loyal to and tried again and again and again to prove his loyalty to constantly trying to kill him and accusing him of disloyalty when in truth it was the furthest thing from his mind. A betrayal in, in Yonatan. He thought that Yonatan was going to go with him, not to, not to rebel against his father, but he always thought that they would be friends forever. And he was planning on taking care of Yonatan. But in the end, Yonatan did not manage to get it done, right? Because Saul refused to listen. So this is kind of like that, that same thing is happening again, where the son of Yonatan was deserting him in his time of need. When he's running away from the new king, who was the fake king, right, Absalom, and Yonatan's son, who he had taken care of and welcomed into his house, refused to come with him. He replied, my lord, the king, my own servant deceived me. Your servant planned to saddle his ass and ride on it and go with your majesty, for your servant is lame. In other words, you know I can't run. You know I cannot keep up with the army. I need to go on a donkey, on a mule. But what happened? Tiva was supposed to do it, but he didn't do it. And therefore, he made up a story to you. Now, why does the, why does the author tell us that he had not peered his toenails or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes? Who doesn't do that? He was mourning. 
He's mourning, exactly. Only people who are mourning don't, don't cut their toenails or trim their mustache or wash their clothing, right? Not even just mourning. This is in the, the, the seven days of Shiva mourning, right? This is not the 30 days mourning. This is the seven days mourning, right? So, but David sees this and David does not recognize what the mourning was for. And David thinks that the mourning was yet another sign of his okay, of his being happy with and okay with the rebellion. Siva has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king is like an angel of the Lord. Do as you see fit. So what he says is like this. Listen, I know that Siva said things about me. And I know that he sold you a bill of goods. But I want you to know, you, as far as I'm concerned, you're like an angel. And you could do whatever you want. For all the members of my father's family deserved only death for my lord, the king. Yet you set your servant among those who ate at your table. What right have I to appeal further to your majesty? He speaks eloquently, and he makes a pretty convincing case why indeed he is correct. But we'll see that David refuses to listen. The king said to him, you need not speak further. I decree that you and Siva shall divide the property. What's interesting is, he says, David tells him that you and Siva should divide the property. Initially, when Siva came, David immediately said, oh, he's not willing to come with us previously, right? When we read about Siva coming to David and saying that Mephibosheth is going over to Avshalom's side, David's immediate response is, you get everything. But now all of a sudden, David says, you know what? You need to split it. Well, if you believe Mephibosheth, then he shouldn't make them split it. He should give it all back to Mephibosheth. And if you believe Siva still, then you shouldn't split it either. Give it all to Siva. What's Mephibosheth's response? And Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take it all as long as my lord, the king, has come home safe. So Mephibosheth is saying that as far as I'm concerned, he could have everything. All I care about is that you have come home safe. Right? So this is almost like a, uh, a poignant way of saying I, I would have died for you even. right? And you're not willing to give it back to me, but that's okay. Where do we have a similar story in Tanakh? where you have a king with two people fighting over something, saying you're going to split it in half, and one individual says, let the other one take everything. Solomon. Oh, the Solomon and the, the two women. Exactly. Two women. Exactly. So Solomon, the story of Solomon and the two women. So over here, though, David does not recognize the truth inherent, right? David could change his mind still, right? The, the, these uh, policies that are being passed and these decisions to award property to this individual, that individual, that's a uh, reversible decision. And David could have said, let me think over here. What is going on over here? Why is Mephibosheth doing all this, right? Maybe he's telling the truth. And we're going to read a Talmudic passage that indicts David for not recognizing the truth of his words. Barzillai the Giladite had come down from Rogalin and passed on to the Jordan with the king to see him off at the Jordan. Barzillai was very old, 80 years of age, and he had provided the king with food during his stay at Machanayim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, cross over with me, and I will provide for you in Jerusalem at my side. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years are left to me that I should go up with your majesty to Jerusalem? I am now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between good and bad? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still listen to the singing of men and women? His enjoyment from life has been curtailed. He can't, doesn't taste of a smell. I'm sorry, his sense of smell, his sense of taste is very weak. His sense of hearing is very weak. 
Why do you need me at your table? Why then should your servant continue to be a burden to my lord the king? Your servant could barely cross the Jordan with your majesty. Why should your majesty reward me so generously? Let your servant go back and let me die in my own town near the graves of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Chimam. Let him cross. I'm just looking at the Hebrew. Um, Okay, uh, interesting name. He says, let my servant Chimham come with you. Let him cross with my Lord, the king, and do for him as you see fit. And the king said, Chimham shall cross with me, and I will do for him as you see fit. And anything you want me to do, I will do for you. All the troops crossed the Jordan. And when the king was ready to cross, the king kissed Barzillai and bade him farewell. And Barzillai returned to his home. The king passed on to Gilgal, Chimam accompanying him, and all the Judite soldiers and part of the Israelite army escorted the king across. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why did our kinsmen, the men of Judah, steal you away and escort the king and his family across the Jordan along with all of David's men? Right. So what they're saying now is we want to ensure that you still are even-handed and will still treat all of us the same. Right? So there is a sense, an underlying tension in terms of the fact that the king was destined to come from one tribe only and the idea that the king might play favorites. All the men of Judah replied to the men of Israel, because the king is our relative. Why should this upset you? Have we consumed anything that belongs to the king? Has he given us any gift? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. And in David too, we have more than you. Why then have you slighted us? Were we not the first to propose that our king be brought back? However, the men of Judah prevailed over the men of Israel. So this is actually a foreshadowing, as we will see. This is a foreshadowing of what will end up happening. And there's a connection in this entire chapter. A lot of this is foreshadowing of what's going to end up happening to the Jewish people. Okay, before we go to our sources, does anybody have any questions or comments? Okay. <laughs> Can I actually ask any, anyone else to, to do some reading? I, I've, been, I've been giving a couple of classes today and my, my voice is going out a little bit. Alana, can you do it? Unmute. Uh, this one, you wanna read the English? Yeah, the English, please. Yeah. Okay. It is written with regard to David's reaction after the after he learns of the death of Absalom, and the king was much moved. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, I'm big. There you go. Move my pictures. They are covering the text. Sorry, just one sec. All right. Oops. Sorry. All right. There we go. Uh, and the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went about, he said, oh, my son of Shalom, my son, my son of Shalom, would I have died in your place? Oh, of Shalom, my son, my son. And a few verses later, it adds, and the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, oh, my son of Shalom, oh, of Shalom, my son, my son. The Gemara asks, why are, are there these eight mentions of my son by David? I.e., to what do we, do they, 
correspond. The Gemara answers, seven times he said, my son, by which he raised him up from the seven chambers of Gehenom. And Gehenna. And as for the other eight times, eighth time, some say that David brought the head of Avshalom close to Avshalom's body. And some say that with this eighth mention, David brought Avshalom to the world to come. What the Gemara is trying to express is this deep, deep rooted sadness and the incredibly descriptive way of what's happening as he's mourning is a little bit out of the ordinary. It's understood that people mourn when their children die. It's understood that people mourn when it's not even their child, when it's a close relative. And like I said before, the Torah tells us that. But why does the emphasis on the specific words that he's using, it certainly is very evocative, and it could be that's the only reason. The Gemara tells us based on tradition that through the, the times that he says these words, he's actually raising his soul up from Gehenna. I think there was a book, was there a book, maybe, maybe a Faulkner book? Uh, oh, Absalom, 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 Absalom? No, maybe not. Okay. Um, but either way, so, sorry. What the Gemara is trying to say is, is that we, that th these actions were actually, these words were being, were, were changing something about what had happened to Absalom. They're actually overturning the decree for what he had done. Okay, now we're going to actually get into, and this is a, a little bit of a longer Gemara, and the Gemara is going to get into this whole story with David and Siva and Mephibosheth. Okay. So let's read what happens over here. Okay, and Shmuel. Or it could be two if you want. Sure, sure. Uh, I guess Linda, yeah, I guess we can take turns, yeah. And Shmuel said David did not accept Ziba's slanderous report without substantiation. Rather, he himself saw conspicuous matters in Mehiposhet that indicated that Ziba was right. It's a long name, sorry. And as it is written, and Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had neither dressed his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in peace. David thought he, that he was mourning the fact that he had returned in peace, as it is written, as it, and it came to pass when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, and the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle me a donkey, and I will ride on it and go to the king because lame is your servant. And he slandered your servant to my king, Lord the king, but my Lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in your eyes. And the king said to him, why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, you and Ziba shall divide the estate. In other words, what, what, sorry. So what he said to the king, let him even take- What's that, what's that? So, so what he's saying is this, he's saying, my Lord, the King is like an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in your eyes. Well, he's saying you should do what's good in your eyes, but the King is saying, I already decided what I'm going to do, right? You're, the implication of what you're saying is that you're not happy with what I have done. And he says, this is not, not, not respectful. I've already decided. My, my decision has been made, right? Okay, uh, should I continue? Yeah. I continue, yes, okay. Yeah, go ahead. And the king said to him, 
Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, you and Ziba shall divide the estate. And Mephisbosheth said to the king, let him even take all, seeing that my lord, the king, is come back in peace to his own house. Mephibosheth said to David as follows, I had hoped for your return, saying, when will he come in peace? And yet you do this to me, giving Ziba half my estate. It is not against you that I have grievances, but against he who brought you back in peace. Mephibosheth's own statement substantiates Ziba's report about him. So in other words, Mephibosheth at this point has revealed himself to complaining against God himself. Mephibosheth is not exactly as, uh, as clearly on the right as it seems to be presented in the Tanakh, in the actual prophet, but rather he has grievances. So let's see. Okay, actually, um, we're going to have to turn to the actual... Uh, I didn't have a chance to put it Rabbi, on. Rabbi? Go ahead. I, I have a question. You just said in the reading here now, it, it says Mishib, Mish... Mephibosheth, it's a hard one. Yeah, that guy was Saul's son, and you had just said he was Jonathan's son. He, he is Jonathan's son, but very often we describe um, grandchildren as their as their grandfather's son. Right. So, so, so in in Tanakh, we often find this idea, right, that you actually are sometimes described as the son of your of your grandfather. Okay. Yeah. It's a little confusing. They could yeah. actually say it correctly, and then I wouldn't have even asked the question. Cause... But, but they're, tr they're trying to think like what the lineage that he comes from is. That, that the important point over here is that he comes from the lineage of Saul, who was the king. That's the important point. Um, would you say that Mephibosheth is an ad as a kind of a nickname for something else? No father would call his son Mephibosheth. I mean, it's like... Son yeah. This the voice of, of shame, you know, like uh, the mouth, mouth of shame. The mouth of shame, yeah. Yeah, it's a great point, and it, I'm happy you just brought that up because we're about to see the Gemara address that point as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay, so let's read. Um, anyone else want to take a turn? Right over here. Okay, so I guess I'll take a turn. This, what is written, the Gemara continues and tells us like this. And the son of, jo oh, so, sorry, I realize it's not on the source sheet, Howard. Um, can you see it? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Um, this is what is written. And the son of Jonathan was Meriv Baal. Where is this written? This is written in Chronicles. So we know that Chronicles also has a listing of what happened. But there's always like some little small differences, nuances between Chronicles and the actual Tanakh. And in Chronicles, it says, and the son of Jonathan was Meriv Baal. Now, what kind of name is Meriv Baal? Oh. The, whoops. It's like the fighting, fighting of Baal, the, uh, the, uh, Elil, how would you say Elil in English? <laughs> it, it's yeah. I mean, basically, it is a it is fighting with uh, Baal. Baal is a uh, an owner of right. Or for example, a um, 
an owner of or a uh, um, the, the person who has dominion over, right? So Baal was actually the name. Of, but, but isn't that one of the gods? The, the uh, Baal was one of the, the uh, gods that were, were worshipped? Yes, it's one of the main Canaanite gods. The, the male, yes. his name was Baal. The yes. Ishtar. So you are right. You are right that that is actually one of the names. But let's see. Let's see what's going on with the Gemara. Wasn't his name Mephibashas? However, since he entered into a quarrel, Meriva, right? That's the word for quarrel, with his master Baal, i.e. God, and complained about God having saved David, a quarrelsome, a, a divine voice emerged and said to him, quarrelsome one, the son of a quarrelsome one, you are just like your father Saul. So this also helps answer Emily's question. Why is he being described as the son of Saul? Because he's exhibiting some of the same characteristics as Saul exhibited. The Gemara explains, quarrelsome one, that which we just said, that Mephibosheth has complained to God about his salvation of David. The son of a quarrelsome one, as it is written, and Saul came to a city of Amalek and quarreled in the valley. And Rabbi Mani said, Saul quarreled with God with regard to matters of the valley, saying, for the murder of even a single person, there is a commandment to break the neck of a heifer in a valley to atone for the crime. Why then must all these Amalekites be killed? Right. So we know Saul was commanded to kill the Amalekites. He refused to do so. He refused to do so out of a misguided sense of mercy. The Gemara explains that what he said to God is, we know there is a concept called the Egla Arufa. The Egla Arufa was if a, if a dead body was found outside of a city, then that city would have to sacrifice a unblemished heifer who had never been used for work. And in doing so, to express their regret for the fact that in a city in nearby their city, someone would actually murder another person. And that's just one individual. Could God possibly want him to kill all these Amalekis? To the matter at hand, Rabbi Huda said that Rav said, when David said to Mephibosheth, you and Siva shall divide the estate, a divine voice emerged and said to him, Rechavam and Yeravam shall divide the kingdom. This is what we know as Mida Kineged Mida, measure for measure. What he did is he divided something that should not have been divided. And the response to that is that your descendants will end up dividing the kingdom as well. Now, if you remember, it's even, it goes back a little bit more than that, right? When we were reading the actual story, we read the fact, yes, we read the fact that he mistreated um, Mephibosheth and sort of called him out and distrusted him and said that they have to divide it. And that's part of it. But it could be that part of it also is when we are watching what happens, the Jewish people themselves are divided because of David's actions. Because he's mourning Avshalom too strongly and not recognizing the fact that he's now supposed to be celebrating his victory, that itself leads to this shaky area or shaky time period in which it was unclear would he succeed back to his original position. Because of that, that lays the seeds and the groundwork for the situation in which now Rechavam and Yeravam are going to divide the kingdom. Um, I, I can't see who's not on mute, but there's a little bit of um, interference on my headphone, at least. Um, can everybody mute themselves if everyone's not muted already? Thank you. Rabbi Huda said, 
that Rob said, had David not accepted Siva's slanderous report about Mephibosheth, the kingdom of the house of David would not have been divided. Israel would not have worshipped idols because of Yerevan, and we would not have been exiled from our land. Do you hear that the, the chain of events over here? You think back to history, right? On such small things, history lies. If David doesn't mourn Avshalom too, too grandly, right? Too sadly, then the, the, the other tribes recognize he's ready to take action and he's reuniting us. There's not any hesitation. It doesn't lay the, the groundwork for the incident with Siva and Mephibosheth. There's not this sort of tension here trying to figure out who's correct, who's not correct, who needs to be lifted up, who does not need to be lifted up. He would clearly have been the king again. He wouldn't have messed up with this Lushan Hara, with accepting the Lushan Hara, the evil slander that, that Siva was saying about Mephibosheth. And then they would not have gotten punished. If they wouldn't have gotten punished by splitting up the house of David, then we never would have worshipped idols. And if we wouldn't have worshipped idols, we wouldn't have been exiled from the land. So ultimately, what can we lay the exile from the land at the feet of the fact that David accepted the slanderous report? And that's why he deserved this punishment, right? I think what the Gemara is trying to emphasize is the importance of A, being down the kapschus, right? Of judging people favorably and not accepting a negative report about them. And B, never accepting Lashon Hara at all, right? Evil speech is unacceptable. And I think that's what the Gemara is trying to illustrate by saying, look at the consequences of this evil speech. It's very reminiscent of the Gemara we've done previously. Uh, we looked at the Gemara in, um, in Erechen, and the Gemara in Erechen is discussing the fact that we did lots of bad things when we were traveling through the desert. If you look at the list of things that we did in terms of complaining to Hashem and worshiping idols, we did lots of things that were not so great. But the thing that sealed the deal that said that we would have to remain in the desert for 40 years until that entire generation had died out, at least the men, what sealed the deal is the miraglin, is the spies with their slanderous report. Right, The importance of not listening to Lashon Hara and not accepting the Lashon Hara, right? We all have this, um, unfortunately, it's part of our baked into who we are, at least for most of us, I can speak for myself, I suppose, um, that when we hear something bad about other people, there's this little twinge inside us of, of success and pleasure that I'm not like that individual, right? It makes us feel good about who we are. We get that sense of self-righteousness. And it's very important to recognize that feeling and to combat that feeling at all times. And the Gemara is trying to express both in, over here, as well as in the story of how we get stuck in the desert. Some of the most pivotal moments in Jewish history do not happen without Lashon Hara being listened, heard, and believed. I think that's a lesson trying to teach us. And um, in a world in which um, it's constantly you know, negating other people one way or the other, just negating them who they are as a person because of X opinion being stated or anything of that nature, it's important to, to look at the totality of the person and also to recognize it doesn't really make a difference. You don't have to accept the reports that you heard about other people. It's not saying never, right? There are obviously times in which you should, but in terms of things that have no effect on your life at all, to accept that negative report, it has consequences. And those consequences may be not as far reaching as these other consequences, these other times in our history, but they will be far reaching consequences. And it's important to recognize that and combat that to the best of our abilities.